Well, tonight we're going to be looking in the book of James, chapter number 5. We concluded our study of the book of 1 Peter last week, and uh, this is uh, kind of a one-off message. We're not going to be starting a new series this evening. Um, Next week, um, I will uh, be uh, up with the uh, teenagers at the Wilds, along with my wife and the Riffles, so you can be praying for us as we go up there. Pray that the Lord will give us safety traveling. Um, Most of the trip is pretty good until you get about the last 30 minutes. And then you're on a mountain road so windy you can see your own taillights. <clears throat> I do get motion sick too, which is why I prefer driving. But uh, certainly uh, pray for us for safety driving, but uh, pray more importantly that the Lord would work in the hearts of the teens. Uh, so next week, uh, Lord willing, Brother Dave Bachman is going to be uh, teaching uh, for the Bible study on Wednesday night. And then I'm praying about possibly doing a study in the book of Ruth after that. Um, look, I'm considering that and praying about that. Uh, those events occur at the same time of uh, the book of Judges. So there's a little bit of a connection there as we've been looking in Judges um, a lot of times on Sunday evenings the last few months. Um, but that's what I'm considering. Eventually, uh, we're going to come back to Second Peter and we're going to kind of finish out that whole Peter uh, series that we started uh, last year with the life of Peter and then coming into First Peter. Um, so anyway, it's kind of the plan. That's kind of what I'm thinking and praying about. And uh, I do uh, do what, want to say that I would definitely appreciate your prayers all the time about uh, God's wisdom and direction as I plan and prepare and study to preach. Um, I always want to be careful uh, to, uh, to preach and teach what the Lord would have us to, to uh, see from His Word. And uh, that requires... Uh, a um, great deal of wisdom, and I covet your prayers in that regard. But tonight from James, we're going to be looking uh, at the end of this book, and the title of this uh, Bible study tonight is Living Right in a World Gone Wrong. <clears throat> you say, is the world really gone wrong? Have you watched the news lately? Yes, our world is badly wrong. And though there's nothing new under the sun, it sure seems like it's getting worse and worse and worse all the time. And there is a certain sense in which we expect that the world is going to continue to deteriorate until the return of Christ. But that doesn't mean that we cannot live right. In fact, the theme of the whole book of James is living right in a world gone wrong. It's about how you and I can live in the light of the Word of God and do what is right even though everyone else around us might be doing what is wrong. And we come to the very end of the book, and tonight we're going to be picking out these last verses, verses 16 through 20. And these final instructions really kind of sum up how to live right in a world gone wrong. Look with me at verse 16. James chapter 5, verse 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins." You know, 
Many times when it comes to living right, we tend to focus on the outward actions and overlook the invisible inward attitudes. We tend to have the idea, as long as I can maintain an appearance of righteousness, well, then I, I must be righteous. But the truth is, is that the outward should be the reflection of the inward, and that what people see should be a product of what people cannot see. If we're going to live right, then it requires us to actually be right. That means, first and foremost, being right with God. That's the idea, by the way, of, the, of righteousness. Being righteous means being right with God. Righteous actions are actions that God says are right. So we must be right with God. But as we'll see in our study tonight, we also must be right with others. Because if we will not be right with somebody else, then we're not right with God. We're going to break this down into three simple categories tonight as we look at these verses. First of all, we're going to notice how we are going to be right with others. Secondly, how we're going to be right with God. And then finally, uh, how that we can help others to be right with God. So number one, let's look on, uh, at our outlines here. Roman number one, we're going to see our faults confessed. Our faults confessed. From verse number 16, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another, that she may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. From this verse, we're going to focus on this aspect of being right with one another. Notice the phrase here in verse 16 when it says, confess your faults one to another, and it also says pray one for another. So there's definitely an emphasis here in this verse on how we relate to other people. And our relationships with others are very important because they affect our relationship with God. To summarize the idea, we'll just say this. If we will not be right with others, we are not right with God. We'll see this principle here from the uh, several passages of Scripture in just a moment. But we kind of have to set the stage here to understand that we cannot ignore our human relationships. We have to make sure that we are righteous in just how we interact with other people. This goes for the most important of our relationships, like the relationship between spouses or maybe parents and children, to all the way down to even the most casual acquaintances. Because in every interaction that we have with somebody, we have an opportunity to show and to display the righteousness of God. Let's notice letter A, the problems that sometimes we might have to deal with. Now this verse begins by saying, confess your faults one to another. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have faults? I said no, I said, no hands. I'll be honest, I didn't need you to raise your hand. Because we all have faults, don't we? And I know we all have faults because we can pick them out of everybody else's life very easily. You know whose faults we have the hardest time picking out? Our own. It's the little splinter in our eye that we have trouble getting. We can see the, 
uh, or, or excuse me, the beam in our eye that we have trouble getting. We can see the little splinters in other people's eyes. Now, in the context here in these verses, going back to verses 14 and 15, uh, there's the, the context here of praying for those who are sick in a special way. And this seems to be connected with that in some degree. But really, it is a, it's kind of taking a, a specific principle and it's expanding it to be a little bit more generic. That if there, there are faults between individuals, there is something wrong between Christians in particular, two different Christians, well, then that needs to be dealt with properly, and that involves, first of all, confessing it. There has to be an admission of, that, uh, of the fact that you've done something wrong and a confessing of that, not only to God, but to the person that you have sinned against as well. Confess your faults, what does it say? One to another. Turn with me to the book of Matthew if you want to keep your finger in James chapter 5 or bookmark. We'll be back there in a moment. But Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, look at verses 23 and 24. It says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. God views our relationships with others so important, as so important that he says, if you're coming to worship me, and in the process, you realize that, notice the wording, thy brother hath aught against thee. If you realize or you remember that somebody has something against you, stop what you're doing and go make it right with your brother. And then come back and worship. That's how important God views our relationships. Now, in this particular instance, you are the party who has done something, and so your brother has something against you. Or it could be that it's just a, a perceived fault. Maybe there was a misunderstanding, but still, they're holding something against you. They have ought against you is the phrasing there. There's something that, that has gone wrong in the relationship so that someone has something against you. If that's the case, you have a responsibility to seek reconciliation there. If you've done something wrong, how do you deal with that? You go and you be reconciled. That looks like an apology. A sincere confession, sincere repentance, genuine apology. You don't make it right with someone. You don't achieve reconciliation with false apologies. You know what a false apology sounds like? I'm sorry you got offended by what I did. That's a false apology. Because basically you're saying that it's just their fault. They, you know, they're too thin-skinned and they got upset at what you did. That's, that's not genuine sorrow that worketh repentance. That's not confession. A genuine Apology is, I did this, it was wrong, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? You don't offer excuses, you don't explain it away, you don't downplay it, you don't sugarcoat it. 
it was wrong, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? That's how you seek reconciliation in this case. Now turn over to Mark chapter 11. Verses 25 and 26 we'll look at here in a moment. Show us just how important these relationships are, how they have a direct effect on our relationship with God. These verses deal with a situation where someone has done you wrong. Mark 11, verse 25. And when you stand praying, okay, notice here we're in a context of you and God. You are, you are praying to God. When you stand praying, forgive if ye have aught against any. That your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Jesus was saying, when you're praying, if there's somebody who has done you wrong, you need to forgive them. Or else, God will not forgive you. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus was not teaching that we earn God's forgiveness by doing certain things. But rather, it's a simple truth that if there is unforgiveness in your heart, that's a sin. And as long as it remains unconfessed and un unrepented of, God will not forgive that. God forgives sins that are confessed, not sins that are unconfessed. And so if you are, you are unforgiving towards someone, then God is not going to be forgiving towards you until you make that right, until you confess your sin of unforgiveness and make it right. So there is this direct connection between our relationship with others and our relationship with God. A husband and wife who are, who are bitter and angry and, and, and butting heads with one another and are not right with each other, they are not right with God. All right, a, a parent and a child who are in the same situation, there's been, a, there's been a breakdown there and both parties are going at it with one another, they are not right with God. Now let me say this, that there are times where you might seek reconciliation and you've done your part, but someone else may be refusing to reconcile. That's where Romans comes in when it says, as much as with lies within you live peaceably with all men, you do your part, then if you've done your part to seek reconciliation and there's no bitterness or unforgiveness in your heart, then you can have that clear relationship with God. But this is how important our relationships are. And here's the thing. In any relationship, problems are going to come up. Anytime you put two sinners together, something's going to happen. Somebody's going to say something. Somebody's going to do something. There's going to be some misunderstanding. Somebody's going to lose their temper. Somebody's just going to wake up on the wrong side of the bed. Something's going to happen. We need to be prepared to deal with that properly so that when those problems come up, we deal with them quickly and in a Christ-like spirit. The worst thing we can do is let it fester and turn into bitterness. Colossians 3.13 gives a good outline for how to deal with it quickly and in a Christ-like manner. It says, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Forbearing one another. That's where you just need to have some godly patience. The thing that they've said or done is not sinful, it just got on your nerves. All right? 
And you in a Christ-like spirit just need to get over it. Forgiving one another is when they've done something that's actually sinful against you, but you're willing to offer them that forgiveness, just like Christ has forgiven us. So the problems will come up. What do we need to do? We need to confess our faults. We need to be willing to go to one another and say, hey, I did this, I said this, it was wrong, I'm sorry. That's a huge step of humility. Most people find that very hard to do. Because we don't like admitting when we're wrong. But if we're going to be right with one another, we have to. So there's the problems. But then letter B, notice this verse also talks about the praying. And pray one for another that you may be healed. Again, in this context of earlier verses about specific prayer for healing, there is a connection regarding those who are sick. Sick. Sometimes sickness, sicknesses do come as a result of, of a specific sin. Now we know that all sickness is a result of the fall. Some specific sicknesses are a direct result of a specific sin. And then in case that that sin might be against another person, part of confessing that sin is to get it right with them personally. But this instruction is not limited to praying just for sick people. We are to pray for one another. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we should be praying for each other all of the time. We should be praying for each other all of the time. When we look in the New Testament, we find a pattern. Over and over again from the book of Acts on through, that Christians spent time praying for one another. Paul affirmed on many occasions that he was praying for the believers. Let me give you a brief sampling. Colossians 1.9 For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. Philippians 1.4 Always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy. 1 Thessalonians 1.2 We give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers. He also requested that believers pray for him. Romans 15.30 Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me and your prayers to God for me. And he expected God to work and to answer those prayers. He said in Philemon, But with all prepare me also lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. We need to be praying for one another. If there's anything in our generation that we have lost, I believe it is the art of prayer. And I blame technology. You ever thought about this? What did they do 150 years ago for fun? They didn't sit around watching TV. They didn't sit around listening to the radio. They didn't sit around scrolling Facebook. There were so many fewer distractions back then. Now we have all these gizmos and gadgets. And they're tools that could make our life so much greater. But instead, they end up just being a huge distraction many times. They could help us, but too often they hinder us because they take us away from the most important things. Listen, if we're, we're going to see this in just a moment. Real prayer is not easy. And if we're going to be praying for one another, we're going to have to make it a priority. You know, as church members, we ought to pray for one another all the time. I don't mean by that 24-7, literally. 
But we should be praying for each other regularly, continually, consistently. And whatever system might work for you, use that. But by all means, develop a, a, a habit of praying for one another. Listen, we need that. I was talking to someone uh, just before the service tonight, and this person uh, told me that uh, they saw something today, and they immediately said a word of prayer for me. And I told them how much that meant to me, and I mean, I mean that sincerely, because I know that I need prayer. Satan wants to attack me. Satan wants to destroy my life. He wants to ruin my family. He wants to destroy my testimony. He's out to get me just like he's out to get you. You remember what Jesus said when he, when, when he told Peter, Satan's desired to sift you as wheat? But what did Jesus say? He said, but I've prayed for you. We need to pray for one another. Take time to pray for each other. And here's, here's the thing, here's the connection, praying for others and being, being right with others. If you are genuinely, sincerely praying for another person, it's going to be very hard for you to hold a grudge against them, to be impatient with them, to be ungracious with them. It's going to be very hard for you not to be right with them if you're genuinely, sincerely praying for them. Or you might look at it the opposite way. If you're not right with someone, it's going to be really hard for you to pray for them. I mean, when you're angry and you're bitter and you go to God and Listen, the Holy Spirit's going to convict you of that when you begin to pray for them. We need to pray for one another. So if we're going to live right in a world got wrong, it first of all means that we need to be right with one another. But then number two, let's look at our fervent calling, and this has to do with being right with God. Being right with God. Looking at verses 17 and 18 primarily here, Now, this is in a context of prayer and what prayer looks like and what real prayer that works does. It says, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. It rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. So the example is given here of an Old Testament story of Elijah. Elijah the prophet. You remember that time when Ahab was king and Jezebel was queen? And there was a time there where for three and a half years it did not rain. Now, in the Old Testament, we don't really know exactly what was going on in Elijah's connection to that other than that he was a prophet. But when we get here to James, we find out that he prayed for that to happen. And because he prayed for that to happen, it happened. Well, verse 16 gives us the key. Look at this. It says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. A righteous man. Someone who is right with God. Notice with me, letter A, the work of prayer. These verses talk about the kind of prayer that avail much. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So it must be effectual fervent prayer. That phrase right there is translated from a single word that we get our English word energy from. Powerful prayer is energetic prayer. And I don't mean spastic and bombastic, but there's some genuine spiritual energy behind it. Powerful prayer is energetic prayer. And energetic prayer is hard work. 
Anybody who has not found that out yet, you need to spend a little more time in prayer and you'll find out just how hard it is. Even the disciples who were in the garden with Jesus found out that prayer was hard work. You remember that in Matthew 26, the night before Jesus was crucified? He goes to the garden. Peter, James, and John come with him a little bit farther in. He leaves them one spot and tells them to pray while he went another uh, space further, about a stone's throw, and he prayed. Prayed for an hour. He comes back, and what are Peter, James, and John doing? Same thing you and I would probably be doing. They were asleep. Say, well, those unspiritual guys... It was the middle of the night. <laughs> they were tired. So yes, they were asleep. And what did Jesus say? Could you not watch with me one hour? They found out that it was hard work. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So what does it require? Two things. Effectual fervent prayer requires persistency and consistency. Two different ideas here. First of all, persistency. You don't give up. You don't give up the first time. You don't pray once and it doesn't happen within five minutes. So you say, well, it must not be God's will. And you move on. No, you're persistent. You keep knocking on the door until God gives you a definite answer. Luke 11, Jesus told the story about a, a friend who came in the middle of the night to his other friend because somebody had come in the middle of the night to join him and he didn't have anything to feed him. And so he knocked on the door and said, hey, can I borrow some bread? Well, the guy inside had already gone to bed and he said, I've already gone to bed. Leave me alone. I'll see you in the morning. But what does the first guy do? He keeps knocking and knocking and knocking. And finally, he'll give him some bread just to make him go away, just so he can go back to sleep. And Jesus said, if we would do that for one another, if we would grant someone their request just because they would not quit bugging us, how much more would our Heavenly Father give us those things that we request? But then consistency. Look back in our text, James chapter 5, verse 17 says, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. That phrase prayed earnestly means that he prayed with prayer or he prayed and prayed. He just kept it up. He was consistent about it. Many times we are serious about our prayer, but we're not consistent with it. And listen, it takes a lot of hard work to develop this kind of a prayer life. But if we want prayer that avails much, this is what we need. Then notice letter B, the requirement of righteousness. The requirement of righteousness. It says the perfectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Did you know that it is possible to pray for the wrong things and to pray for the wrong reasons? It's entirely possible that you and I could do that. And because of that, it's entirely possible that we would pray for the wrong things and for the wrong reasons and not receive answers to those prayers. James 4.3 says, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. I was reading something recently that touched on these verses in James chapter 4, and it 
it said something to this effect, that too often we approach our prayer life like ordering off of a menu. God, I'll take uh, this and this, but hold that, you know. I'd like provision and protection, but, you know, uh, if you could hold the hard work, I'd rather not have to do that. And we feel like we can pick and choose. Listen, if we're sincerely praying, our prayers will always be prefaced by, Thy will be done. Thy will be done. So it's possible to pray for the wrong things for the wrong reasons. But you know what's even more frightening? It's possible to pray for the wrong things with the wrong motives in such a persistently rebellious way that we actually receive the things we're praying for. And that's what happened to the Israelites in Psalm 106. It says that they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert, and He gave them their request, but sent leanness unto their soul. That thing that you may want so badly that you may have convinced yourself that this is the one thing you need to be happy and to be fulfilled and you must have it in your life. God knows better. It may or may not be. You need to let God be God. And if God says, no, that's not what's best, then you need to be okay with that. Your prayer should never be, Lord, give me this or else I die. That shouldn't be our attitude. It should always be, not my will, but thine be done. In order to know that God will hear and answer our prayers, we must know that our heart is right with Him. What does it say? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Many people have the false idea that in order to have your prayers answered, you have to pray good prayers. You know what I mean by that? You ever heard somebody pray publicly and you thought to yourself, wow, they can pray good prayers. You know, they sound very eloquent. They use a lot of these and thous in it and that kind of a thing. And you're thinking, oh, wow, they really know how to get a hold of God. Now, some people use those words, and I'm not mocking that at all. I'm mocking our misunderstanding when we think that because you can pray like that, well, your prayers must get answered. That's not how it works. God hears the mumbling of the toddler just as much as he hears the most eloquent preacher pray. It's not the grammar, the words, the eloquence that's important. What is important is, is our heart right with God? The power of prayer does not lie in our ability to use impressive words. The power of prayer relies, or lies rather in God's ability. If we will do the hard work of prayer with a heart that is right with God, then we can see God do wonderful things in our life. I think of the contrast between the Pharisee and the publican in Luke 18. The Pharisee knew how to pray impressive prayers. But was that prayer heard? No, nope. he went down to his house unjustified. The publican, however, his prayer was not that impressive. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Okay, you're not going to probably find that in a... In a, in a book of common prayers somewhere. You know, it's just not that impressive. But Jesus said he went to, down to his house justified. You can be an expert at impressive prayers and not have a single one of them answered. What's important is that our heart is right with God. So notice number three or letter C, the result of right praying The result of right praying. 
The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You know what that means? It means it gets stuff done. The word avail uh, has the idea of to have power, even the power to do extraordinary things. Here's the principle. Powerful prayer can do things that are out of the ordinary. Jesus said if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you can move mountains. Mountains don't usually move. That's out of the ordinary. But Jesus said even this was possible through prayer. Again, here in James chapter 5, we have the example of Elijah. He prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years. He prayed again and it did rain. Some would say, well, that was just a coincidence. I don't have that much faith. <laughs> you think that was just a coincidence? No. God said he prayed, it didn't rain. He prayed, it did rain. That simple. You say, well, yeah, but that was Elijah. He's the prophet. I'm just normal. But what does the verse say? He's a man subject to like passions, such as we are. Elijah was no different when it came to prayer than you and I, except that he worked hard at it. And he kept his heart right with God, so that he saw God do some extraordinary things. Think about the time in 1 Kings 18, where he had that showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Why did God send the fire and consume his sacrifice when the prophets of Baal had been jumping around and hollering and cutting themselves and trying to call down fire from Baal all day? Why did God answer Elijah and do that for Elijah? Because he prayed. And you read his prayer in 1 Kings. Listen to this. 1 Kings 18 verses 36 and 30, 30 through 38. It came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel... Let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. Prophets of Baal had spent most of the day making fools of themselves. And Elijah, in just less than a minute, prayed a simple prayer, and God answered. If we're going to live right in a world gone wrong, we have to be right with God. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And then finally, let's notice Roman numeral 3, a friend converted. This is about helping others be right with God. From verses 19 and 20. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Part of our responsibility as Christians is to help each other be right with God. That means that when there is a problem in my life or in your life, that others should be willing to reach out to us to try and help us resolve that. To get back to the place where we are right with God. Letter A, let's notice the error. If any of you do error from the truth. There's a lot of ways that people can fall into error. This seems to be an emphasis on doctrinal error. Erring from the truth. And this is something that we have to be so careful of. Because what we believe determines how we behave. 
And if our doctrine is wrong, then the way that we live will be wrong. Titus chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 tells us, Holding fast faithful words as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayers. Doctrinal error is dangerous. It can creep into a church and it can ruin that church's effectiveness and testimony. We have to be on the lookout for that. And listen, there is no shortage of heresy out there today. Even in good churches, there's all kinds of heresy that can, be, that can creep in through the internet, through the book section at Walmart, through other people, conferences, and all kinds of things, even through institutions, organizations that we might generally recommend. We have to constantly be on our guard. Because you know what? False doctrine doesn't announce itself as false doctrine. The wolf doesn't show up in the middle of the flock and say, I'm a wolf, I'm here to eat you all. Comes in in the sheep's clothing. So there's doctrinal error, but then, of course, there's moral error as well. Galatians 6, 1 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. We are to be on the lookout for errors in ourself and to a lesser degree in others. That's the biblical principle. We need to, we need to learn to look at ourselves in a biblically critical way. What I mean by that is don't assume you're always right. Don't assume you're always doing everything right. Don't assume you're always believing everything right. Be willing always to evaluate yourself in light of Scripture. James chapter 1 talks about how that when we look into the Word of God, it's like looking into a mirror. When you look in the mirror, what does the mirror do? It just tells you what's there in front of it. You may not like it, but it's not the mirror's fault. But you look in the mirror. Hopefully you did that today. You looked in the mirror and you said, all right, I got some work to do. And so you did a few things. And you fixed your hair. Maybe you shaved. Maybe you trimmed your beard. Some of you didn't, I can tell. But what do you do when you see what the mirror says? You can either ignore it or you can make the changes. We need to regularly look into the mirror of God's word, let it tell us what is right, what is wrong about us, and make the appropriate changes. But then there are many times where we need to do that for others as well. Have you ever been maybe, uh, maybe out to eat or over at someone's house? When you were eating and you had salad with supper, enjoyed your salad, it was great. Finished the rest of your meal. Later that evening, you go maybe to the restroom and you're standing in front of the mirror, and all of a sudden, you notice you got half a spinach leaf sticking out in front of your teeth there. You ever, you ever had that happen? Some of you don't because you don't eat salad. I get that, all right. But you ever had something like that happen? And what are you thinking? I wish somebody told me. Wish somebody told, here I've been going around laughing, smiling, and I've got, you know, a cabbage head sticking out of my. You know, a good friend will say, hey, you got a spinach leaf stuck in your tooth. 
Now, you can get offended that they pointed that out, or you could take that as a genuine sign of friendship and do something about it. And yes, our priorities should be checking ourselves, but we ought to be willing to help each other out too. To be rearview mirrors, as, as it were. To point out what may, may be blind spots to people, to help people who may have succumbed to some kind of an error. Then letter B, there's the exhortation here. It says, and one convert him. To convert means to turn around. In other words, to bring someone to a point of repentance. Our goal in dealing with an errant brother is always restoration through repentance. It's what we're going for here. Our goal is not to beat someone down. Our goal is not to uh, make an example of them, as it were. Our goal is to see them restored to a right relationship with God by repenting of that sin. Titus 2 Timothy chapter 2 talks about how that the servant of the Lord should be instructing those that oppose themselves if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledge of, of the truth. And how we go about doing this is very important. It's not only important that we say the right thing, it's also important that, important that we say it the right way. We are to be exhorting one another. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 says, Exhorting one another. That means to come alongside them and assist them in their need. We don't come down on them hard and beating them to death. We don't cut their legs out from under them. We come alongside them and we help them out. And that's one of the reasons why church is so important. It's a place that God has ordained that his children meet together regularly to help each other in their spiritual life. And the result of this converting of a friend is the everlasting blessing let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. If you've been instrumental in someone's recovery from error, you've helped deliver them and to bring them back into a right relationship with God. You've delivered them from the chastisement of God for their sin, possibly an untimely death. Certainly you've delivered them from the trap of the devil. But it's not just about avoiding punishment. It's about enjoying the divine fellowship that they will be able to enjoy once again. David said, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. So not only do we want to be right with each other, we want to be right with God, and we want to help each other be right with God. Because the truth is, it's not easy to live right in this sinful world. Everything's working against us. The world, the flesh, the devil, it's all trying to pull us in the wrong direction. But by God's grace and with God's strength, we can follow the teaching of God's word. Our only hope for living right in a world gone wrong is living by the Bible so that we are right with God and right with others. God help us to do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, the help and the instruction that it gives us. Lord, I pray that we would not be careless or apathetic about our spiritual life. You've said that if we would hunger and thirst for righteousness, we would be filled. Grant it, Lord, that we would truly crave righteousness. 
and that our lives would glorify you. I pray it in Jesus' name.